Tonight we're going to begin in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. And uh, we're going to read uh, several passages, some, several selected passages. I'm going to begin with the first verse of chapter 4. But basically what we're going to do tonight, again, this is not a verse-by-verse verse study that we're doing. So tonight we're actually going to cover from the 4th chapter all the way through the 10th chapter um, because of what we're talking about. Now I'm not going to read all of that. Um, though, though, just for the sake of time, although, you know, frankly, we could probably read it all, uh, from the fourth chapter th- all the way through the tenth chapter and then close in prayer, and it would be pretty awesome already. But, uh, but we're going to read it, give you some insights as, it, as we can, and then I, I just think there's something really, really powerful and encouraging in these passages for us as, as believers today, because that's, that's the thing. The book of Revelation, when you study prophecy, there's a lot of conjectures, a lot of things that we don't know. Um, and a lot of times, as I was talking with Chuck last week, a lot of times you, re- you come out of a study of the book of Revelation and you're like, well, I don't even know what that means for me today. And so what this is going to do, th- this study, this series is really more about uh, who is Jesus? Who is, who, who is, uh, how is Jesus revealed in the book of Revelation? Because that has a lot to say to us about who, where we are today and, and how we live. So anyway, Revelation chapter 4. Excuse me, beginning in verse 1. After this I looked, and there was an open door in heaven. The first voice I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here, and I'll show you things that which must must excuse me must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit, and there was a throne set in heaven, with one sitting on the throne. And he who sat there appeared like a jasper and a sardius stone. There was a rainbow around the throne, appearing like an emerald. Now skip down to chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written within and on the book sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. I saw a lamb in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, standing as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to to God by your blood out of the out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests unto our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then chapter 6, verse 1, just the one verse. I saw the lamb open one of the seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures saying with voice like thunder, come and see. Now, now let, let me just go through the, the seals really quickly with you. Uh, we're not going to talk about that as a teach about that. But the first seal is, is in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The second seal is in verses 3 and 4. Third seal is in verses 5 and 6. Fifth seal uh, fourth seal is uh, verses 7 and 8. The fifth seal is in verses 9, 10, and 11. 
The sixth seal is then in verses 12 through 17. And then after the sixth seal, there is this sort of a parenthesis. Uh, and that's where the 144,000 are sealed from all the tribes of Israel. And, and there's also then this vast crowd that gathers around the throne and worship from every nation and every tongue. And, and as you read all this in this parenthesis, you can sort of, it's easy to lose track of the seventh seal because it's not there with all the other six seals. But if you look, the seventh seal is not until chapter eight. And after the seventh seal, then comes the seven trumpets. Now, after that, I want you to, to look at chapter 10, beginning in verse one. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he cried out, seven thunders sounded their voices. And then down to verse eight. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go, take the little scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Well, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you the, the, for this massive, huge book. It is so transcendent, so, so glorious, so wonderful. We just pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes open our minds, open our spirits to comprehend. We believe you for it. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we began this series on the book of Revelation last week, talking about the fact that the, how, uh, how we want to uh, make the book of Re Revelation behave the way we want it to behave, how, how, uh, how we often perceive it uh, around the cultural bias of our own Western linear, linear thinking. And, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, there's a great illustration, you know, way we can kind of understand that. I've been blessed to be able to participate in, on a number of uh, different missions trips in various nations around the world. And, and one of the things that's always a joy, it's always an interesting experience to watch people who are on their first missions trip as their cultural horizons are opened and stretched. And uh, I heard a story about something like that uh, uh, from a missionary evangelist who was, he was preaching in Georgia. And after the service, a man came up to him and his, the man's name was Bubba. And of course, you live in the South, you realize that really is his name. It's not just a made up thing. And so anyway, he, he, the man came up to him, introduced himself to the missionary and, and Bubba said, I want to go on a missions trip. And the preacher said, great, let's go, Bubba. I'm going to Peru in about three and a half months. Get your passport and go with me to Peru. Well, Bubba was so excited. And he told the preacher that he had never been out of the county in which he was born. He had never lived there in Georgia. He'd never been to Atlanta, never been to Macon, never actually crossed the county line in which he was born. And he was so excited. The preacher knew that they were in trouble, though, when, with, uh, when Bubba called him from a payphone at the Kmart a few uh, weeks later. And he said, preacher, you told me I was, I, that I was to get a passport. And he said, I'm down at the Kmart and they ain't got none. And the preacher said, Bubba, you're, you're not going to find a passport at, at the Kmart. 
And, uh, and he said, well, if you can't get it at the Kmart in Colquitt County, County then you're in trouble. And the missionary, missionary said, Bubba, try the federal government. So then having obtained a passport from the highly unlikely source of the passport agency, Bubba and his missionary plunged off into Peru. And the missionary leading the way and Bubba just asking one question after another. Everything was new to him. He had never been in an airport. He had never been on an airplane. He had never been through customs. He, he had never heard a foreign language being spoken. He had never been to another country. Everything, everything was new. And he was especially fascinated with, with the language. Uh, one day he came up well, on, this, on this trip, he came into the missionary and said, these, these Peruvian children are the smartest children in the whole world. And the missionary said, well, Bubba, yeah, they're smart. I mean, you know, kids are kids. They're just normal kids. He said, why would you say that? He said, well, look at them. Five, six years old, and they're already able to speak Spanish. And so that's when he realized. That's at that moment when the missionary realized that Bubba had no working philosophy of language. Bubba thought everybody in the world was actually thinking in English. And that these Peruvians, evidently, evidently just to entertain themselves, were translating everything into Spanish. Well, he couldn't get enough of this whole language thing. He would just all the time be asking about something. How do you say microphone? Uh, what about plant, floor, church, wall? I mean, everything. And he was, he's just about to drive this missionary loony. Finally, the missionary just turned Bubba over to the a uh, Peruvian guide that was there to help them. His name was Francisco Morales. And he said, just, just take care of him. Answer all his questions. And so Francisco, with the patience of Job, would just answer one thing after another. One day during that trip, the missionary was coming up the steps of the mission compound. And he saw Bubba and Francisco. And while he was walking past them, he heard Bubba ask them, Francisco. He said, well, how about hat? How do you say hat? And Francisco just you know, the missionary is thinking, oh, good grief. Does this guy ever stop? And Francisco just patiently said, sombrero. And Bubba looked up at the missionaries, walked by and said, how do you think they got sombrero out of hat? He just didn't understand it. And they, he, he just, the missionary realized that Bubba thought the whole world was thinking hat. And that they were somehow or another that they were just insisting on calling it a sombrero that they wanted to somehow or another invent their own word or something. But all really came to a head when, uh, to the missionary when they got back to Lima, Peru. They had one day left on the trip and the missionary said, Bubba, we have an extra day in Lima. How would you like to go see the great cathedral built by Pizarro himself, the, 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 the conquistador? It's one of the oldest buildings in the Western Hemisphere, it's magnificent. It's a huge cathedral. And Bubba said, oh, I would love to go see a cathedral. I've never seen a cathedral. And the missionary thought, that's right, because in Colquitt County, you ain't got no cathedrals. Well, they went down to the cathedral and they got a guided tour, hour and a half guided tour. And they had, you know, little chapels along the side with icons to this saint or to that saint. And there were people there lighting candles and praying in there, and they showed him the confessional booth. I mean, they just showed him everything. And they, they finally got down to the main altar at the church, and it was absolutely unbelievable. It was just beautiful, just glittering with gold. And, 
and then right up over the main altar, suspended by barely visible guy wires in, in midair, was, a, was about a 10-foot statue of the Virgin Mary in a wedding gown with light shining on it. And it was just stunningly beautiful, uh, suspended right up over the main altar. Well, they got all finished with the tour, and the missionary said, Well, Bubba, what do you think? And Bubba put his, put his hands on his hips, he narrowed his eyes suspiciously, and he looked around and he said, It looks Catholic to me. <laughs> I mean, it's got the Virgin Mary in a wedding gown suspended from the ceiling, and he's like, it looks Catholic to me. I mean, but did you think it was First Assembly? You know, but, but uh, that was what he was. Well, listen, here's, I say that to say this. I believe there are many, many, many Western Christians, American Christians, Canadian, uh, uh, Australian, British Christians, many, many Western Christians who open the book of Revelation and peer into it with their hands on their hip, narrow their eyes suspiciously, and they say, it looks Jewish to me. Well, it is. It is. We, we cannot make this document dance to our tunes. We can't make this document bend itself. We can't make it mean what we want it to mean. We have to let it flow. We have to just sort of let it erupt in our, in our face. In the opening passage that we read uh, this, this evening, in verse 1, it said this. It said, after this, I looked, and there was an open door in heaven. What is it saying when he says there's an open door in heaven? Because remember, uh, we want to understand what it means, uh, not just some idea of what somebody else says, well, this symbolizes this or that. It's just saying God took me to a different perspective. He opened, opened, it up to, opened it up to see an internal viewpoint, a, a way of looking at life and history and eternity. He's saying, I stepped up to behold, and a voice said, come up here, come up here. And he said, God lifted me up to behold everything that was happening, and I sat in a whole different place. I stepped up to a whole different atmosphere. I stepped up to a whole different dimensional view, and I saw everything. I was suddenly was translated instead of living here in the midst of the, the, this grimy, difficult, trying human situation in which we live. Suddenly the door was open and I was translated into another dimension and saw it all from the heavenly perspective. Well, the first vision that he sees when this happens, when he moves into that heavenly perspective, is the throne of God with the Lord Jesus Christ. A throne above every throne. A ruler above every, every ruler. Now I want you to understand the great encouragement in this vision that, that he's seeing. Because this, this is a guy, John, who is living through terrible, terrible tribulation. He's writing to people, as we heard last week, who are living through terrible tribulation. He says, I'm your brother in tribulation. He's going through persecution. They're going through per persecution. It's a horrible, horrible time in their lives and a horrible time in human history and a horrible time in church history. And God says, now let me show you something. And God lifts him up, opens a door in heaven, takes him through, and there in the throne room of God, uh, 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 there is the throne room of God upon which sits the Lamb. He, he sees its resplendent glory. He sees its beauty. He, he says that the one that sits on the throne is like a sardius stone, a precious gem. Now remember, 
We talked last week about not viewing these things literally, but seeing what they mean. He's saying that the one who sits on the, upon the throne is like the most precious jewel that you could ever imagine. It doesn't mean that when you see Jesus, he's going to look like a sardius stone. It means that he is a precious jewel, that he is glorious, that he is more valuable than we can imagine. So what, what is God saying to him in this moment where he lets him see the throne? I think God is saying to him, I know you've seen the throne of Caesar. I know you've seen the, 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 the kings of the thrones of the kings of the earth. I know you, you've seen their, the power of their armies. But let me now show you one who is above and higher, more glorious, more perfect, more beautiful, and more powerful than any of them or all of them combined. And what we see is we see Christ unfolding in the fourth and fifth chapters as the central reality of not only human history, but of all eternity. Because he is the focus of heaven. He is adored and worshipped by the angels. He is called holy, worthy, and glorious. And the, the encouragement to us is this. As we see this, it's the same as it was for John. We don't have to be intimidated by, threatened by, frightened by, owned or dominated by any throne, dominion, power, army, or force. Look, right now, we live in the, the we have this wonderful, glorious privilege to live in a free country. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. You know, and there are those who take advantage of, of this season, particularly in, in American history, to criticize this country. There are those of, even of other countries who feel perfectly free to come into these streets, into this country, and to criticize it. And when they do that, you know, they're not going to get killed. They're not going to get shot. The secret police are not going to show up to break into their house and arrest them and, and cut their throat or take them in the backyard and execute them. And that's not going to happen to us. We can speak our minds. We can speak what we believe. And that's a wonderful privilege. It's a marvelous thing. Even in the midst of a, of, of a war, our citizens are perfectly free to oppose it. But however, saying, having said all that, what if the day comes where that's not true? What if the day comes where we are invaded? What if the day comes where we are conquered? What if the day comes where another throne rules? What if the day comes where somebody tears down the White House and destroys the Capitol and takes away our republic and destroys our democracy and sets up some throne and then rules and reigns in America and has dominion, dominion over us? Can you imagine if that happened? What a word of encouragement this revelation would be to, to you at that moment to, to say, look, you, you see that throne, you see that king, you see his dominion, you see his power, you see his army, you see his forces, you see his secret police. However, let me open this door to heaven. Now come up here and see another throne. Step up this way. And that's precisely the message that came to the people in which it was, to which it was spoken. Now, look at chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
Then I heard every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that are in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Now here's the thing. We spend way too much time trying to figure out what the face of this creature means or what the the dimensions of that thing means or what the symbolism of this thing means. And that, that's all fine. That's all, that's all fine to play with and work at. But listen, that is not the point. That's not the point. The point is that everything, all of nature, all of heaven, all of the angels, all the archangels, all the creatures in heaven, whatever they look like, all of the elders. And, and, you know, we can bicker all day about what the 24 elders mean, in my own opinion, for whatever it's worth, and which it's worth nothing. It's the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. It means the, the conglomeration of those who are redeemed, both Jews and Gentiles. I believe, I believe that's what it means. But you know what? I'm, I'm not going to run for Congress on that. Uh, the real point of, it, of this passage is this. It's that everything in heaven, everything in the earth, all of created order, all of nature, all of supernature, all of the spiritual domain, all of the natural domain, every angel, every archangel, everything is focused on Jesus in triumphant, glorious, unending praise and adoration beyond anything that we've ever dared to think of or imagine. That's the point, is that everything is focused on Him, that all of creation is worshiping Him. That's the point. The point of all of this is not who the elders are or what the face of this creature means or what that one means. It's about the centrality of Christ in worship in both the natural and supernatural domains. It's about the glory and the beauty of it. Well, look at chapter 5, verses 1, four, verses one through 4. This is a very critical and of huge, huge comfort to us. He says, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. Now, now look, the, the seven seals are that, that, that are going to be loose. We find out later that they include things like, like conquest and war and famine and death and a persecuted church and, a, and cosmic disorder. You know, the seventh and eighth chapter brings out the seven trumpets, hail and fire on earth and fire in the sea that poisons the waters of the earth and messengers of poison from the spiritual dimension and heavenly disorder and demonic armies and the armies of the Euphrates that, that, that cross the Euphrates, what, the armies of the east. What could that mean? I mean, could that be Iran? Could that, could that mean China? I mean, I mean l- listen, here's the thing. When you start trying to define all these things, uh, be very, very careful when reading the book of Revelation about imposing contemporary historical application on transcendent realities. Just be very, very careful. Uh, for, you know, for example, over, well over 25 years ago now, there was a man who was teaching, and he was teaching very authoritatively, saying that we know exactly who the armies of the East are. 
the armies of the east that will cross the Euphrates River. He, he was saying that it's going to be armies from China and that China is going to march on Israel. He said we know exactly what that means. And he said the armies of the north, that it has, to be, it has to mean Russia. Well, somebody listening to him teach one time, they said, well, how do you know? It just says an army from the east of the uh, east of the Euphrates. How do you know it has to be China? And he said, well, who, who else could it be that could mount an army of two million soldiers and march on Israel from the east of the Euphrates? And the other man replied by saying, well, what if some of the Arab nations got together, Iraq and Iran? And, you know, which now you need to understand 25 years ago that neither one of those were political or military powers. And he, he said, what if they should arise and have massive armies? He was almost even joking when he said that. But, but he said, what if, what if you, you should have Arab and Islamic armies march across the Euphrates River and attack Israel? Why couldn't it be them? And a man just laughed at him and people in the room just sort of giggled at his foolishness. And, and, and the man said, can you believe for one minute that Iraq and Iran, beaten down, pathetic little ragtag nations, that they would ever be able to mount international war and cross the Euphrates and attack Israel? The guy who asked the question, you understand, again, they were not powers back then. They didn't have any kind of military might or political clout. And, and the guy said, well, no, I can't. I'm just saying that you, that you don't know that it's China. See, to give an example, I mean, there, there were Christians in pre-World War II Poland, evangelicals in Poland before World War II. They were 100% sure that Hitler was the beast, he was the Antichrist, and that Mussolini was his prophet. They were 100% sure. Therefore, their theology said, we'll be raptured out of here before the coming dominion of the beast. So they said to themselves, have no fear of the invasion of Germany because we won't be here. We'll be gone. And when they woke up with and found Nazi tanks parked outside of their shop windows, they were among those who lost their faith the fastest. Because instead of receiving the glorious message of hope that transcends history, they impose their own view of history on a book that transcends the moment. Look, I'm just saying to you, I don't know what it means in history now that there is a war going on in Ukraine. I don't know. I mean, I have some guesses, I have some ideas, but I don't know. That's the point I'm making. Just don't panic when somebody says to you, oh, a world war could break out. This is it. This is it. We don't, we don't know that. The, the point is, is far greater than that. The point is huge. It goes beyond wars and rumors of wars. The point is, who has the power and authority to open the seals and to allow the trumpets to be blown? Who has the power for that? Who will open these seals? The angel cries. Not, not to mention, I think we have to ask ourselves, why do we want those seals to be opened? And why, why would we want that? War and famine and pestilence and death and all of that. Why would we even want those seals opened? Well, we want those open because those seals indicate the progression of human history toward the moment of our final redemption and the restoration of Christ's kingdoms. We have to go through those things. History has to move forward. Jesus said it. He, he, there's always going to be wars and rumors of wars. We have to go through those things. We are in the end times and those things have to be moved. The, the world has to walk through those things. 
And you look historically, there had to come Alexander the Great. There had to come Cyrus and Artaxerxes. There had to come Hitler. There had to come Idi Amin. There had to come Pol Pot in Cambodia. There had to come Saddam Hussein. Those beasts and, and little beasts have to come. Those armies have to fight. Those wars have to be lived through. History has to happen as we move forward. Nevertheless, listen to this. Who is it? This is the point. Who is it? that breaks open the seals on those scrolls. It's the Lamb. Only Jesus can open the seals. Those seals represent the marching forward of, of human events in human history. Who's the one who initiates that? Who breaks open the seals? It's the Lamb. In other words, there's nothing that history can hand you of which Jesus was not already aware and where Jesus is not in control. You know, when 2022 started, I didn't know what it would hold. I mean, let, we can go back. When 2020 started, nobody knew what 2020 was going to hold. Nobody dreamed that we'd have a pandemic. You know, and then this year, uh, you know, I, when 2022 started, I didn't, I, I didn't know it would hold war. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know what it would hold. But I, I knew who, who held 2022. Jesus is the one who has the power and the authority to break open the seals. Nothing can happen to us historically or contemporaneously that Jesus is not in control of and, be, and above it and ruling over it. He, he is not only God in history, but he is the God of history. So look at chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. Then I looked, and there was a great multitude, which no one could count, from all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands. Listen, you know, right now, the world is on edge. With, with the, with the, it's on edge with the prospect of massive and devastating war looming over all of us. We have to live in that historical reality. But, but here's what I want you to see from this. Do you understand that the day will come when Russian Christians and Ukrainian Christians and Iranian Christians and Israeli Christians and Pakistani Christians and American Christians and Chinese Christians and North and South Korean Christians that we're all going to stand side by side, washed by the same blood, our names written in the same book, underneath the same throne, praising the same Lord, singing the same songs, that, that all of those things that divide and separate and cause the warring madness in which we live will all be gone, and, and what will unify us will be the centrality of the Lord Jesus in human history. Nothing can happen to us that is a shock to him. Jesus is not shocked by anything. He's not surprised. He doesn't pick up a newspaper every day and say, well, I wonder what's happening in Ukraine today. Now, this is very, very encouraging for us to know that nothing happens in human history unless Jesus broke open the seal. Nothing is allowed to go on in earth unless Jesus snapped the seal. The trumpet, no trumpet is blown unless Jesus allows the trumpet to be blown. Now that, that brings us honestly to a very difficult and terrible question, an awesome, awful, huge question. And here's the question. 
Why does he open those seals? It's another way of saying the question, why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does he allow those things? Why does he allow human history to go on like that? Why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't he end murder and war and famine and pestilence? Why doesn't he stop it? Now listen, because this is very, very important. Uh, first of all, there, there is an element there of, of, of free will that he's given to humanity. and We can choose with our free will to do good or evil. So there's some element of there. But, but here's the main thing I want you to see ultimately. And that is he will stop it. He, he will stop it. He's going to stop it. However, when he does stop it, he stops it all. When he stops it, it's done. When he stops it, there's no chance for repentance anymore for anyone else. Because all of our human history, everything that we have done, all of these things, it, it will be over with. So when he stops it, he stops it all. So some kid somewhere is sitting alone in a room and, and reading a pornographic magazine and he's indulging his mind and his flesh in, in the wickedness of his own imagination. However, Jesus says, I have to give that boy a little longer. I love that boy. I want him out of that trap. I want him redeemed from that. I want him free of that. So I'm going to let the parade of human history go on in all of its pain and horror and nightmare because when I step in and pull, the, pull up the curtain, it all stops so, so that all sin stops and all sinners are brought before the throne of judgment. So we, we say to ourselves, why doesn't he stop horrible things? Why doesn't he stop murderers? Why doesn't he stop child molesters? Why doesn't he stop these wars and famines? The reason he doesn't stop those is the same reason that he, he doesn't take us with a lie in our mouths or wickedness in our minds immediately before the throne of judgment. It's the grace of God. Allowing humanity to move forward and giving people a chance to repent before him. Because if he stops it, it also ends the opportunity for repentance. He, he, he's giving life and human history time to move forward in the progression of his redemptive process so that more and more and more and more people might be saved. So, so he allows that mixture of humanity to sort of tumble in the washer until that moment. See, he, he has an eternal view on this of time and and space and history and eternity that, that, will, that will come to some moment of perfect timing, known only to him, reserved only to him who has, who has the power and authority to open the seals. And in that moment, that last trumpet will sound and we'll rise to meet him in the air and all of that war and famine and pestilence will be behind us. It will be over. However, until that moment, what encourages us is that his throne is fixed in heaven. That the angels adore him, that he is our Lord, and that nothing can happen to us that's going to be a surprise to him. Look at chapter 7, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood before the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then verse 14, I said to him, Sir, you know, he said to me, these are, the, are those who 
came out of great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more. Thank God. Thank God that there will come a day when there will be no more hunger or starvation, either physically or spiritually. We'll be fully satisfied. He says, nor shall they thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a moment that will be when all of the wounded and all of the afflicted and the hurting and the infirm and the crippled and the blind and the deaf and the naked and the wounded and those that have been plowed underneath the chariot wheels of anti-Christian, anti-Semitic tyrants since the beginning of time will suddenly rise and come into His presence and Jesus will shepherd them personally. He will personally feed them. He will personally wipe away their tears. He will personally lead them into heaven. He will personally care for them. All of the fear and anxiety and terror of this world will be gone. And we say to ourselves, though, what does that mean to me now, though? We say, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's great that someday Jesus is going to come. That's, that's great that someday he'll wipe away every tear. That's great that someday he'll comfort me. But what does it mean to me now? Well, it means that when I live in praise and adoration to Him, and I have my mind and my heart and my soul fixed on Him, that I am part of a transcendent and eternal reality that goes beyond the history of the moment in which I live. I'm lifted up into another place into another dimension that praise empowers me to, to live in what I'm living in now because I'm fixed on Him who lives above it. What does that mean? It means that there is a power in lining ourselves up with the character and nature of the praise that's happening in heaven right now. This worship that we're reading about is not some future event that's going on around the throne of God right now. And there's something that happens, there's power that's released in our lives when we begin to line our lives up and our worship and our praise with the character and the nature of the praise that's, that's happening around the throne in heaven right now. At this moment, in the, in the spiritual do domain, if the door could open, if we could go through as John did, if we could see the throne, if we could see the 24 elders, if we could see the beasts that worship Him, if we could see the angels and the archangels and the company of heaven, if we could see all of the 144,000 who have washed their robes, if we could see the pure blood-bought blood church worshiping Him, if, if we could hear the noise, the noise, Somebody once said, you Pentecostals all worship like you think God is deaf. Well, I just say he's not deaf, but he's, he's not nervous either. God likes noise. Heaven's going to be loud, seriously loud. And, I, and I'm not saying to you that you have to be loud on earth to, to get used to it, but I am saying it might be nice to get prepared. It's going to be loud, people shouting and weeping and crying 
And the voice of God like thunder, voice of God as as if it were 10,000 waterfalls, the praises of all the saints, the music of the redeemed. It's going to be a riot of music and worship and praise. And when we get ourselves into that stream of worship and praise, power is unlocked where we are now. You might say, well, that all just sounds like theory. Sounds like vague theology, but how does it work? I'll give you an example right out of Scripture. Here are two men in a season of global distress. A worldwide dictatorship has occupied their nation, slaughtered their people, massacred their women, and sold them into slavery. And even in that, they have chosen a minority religion that is not even appreciated by their own people. Therefore, they are rejected by their own and imprisoned by their tyrants. They have no power. They have no army. They have no office. They have no one to intercede for them. They are arrested and thrown into prison, beaten senseless, stripped naked, mocked by their guards and chained to the wall in the middle of the night. They are in tribulation. I want to tell you something. People always want to bicker over whether or not saints are going to go through the great tribulation. Uh, Let me tell you what the great tribulation is. The great tribulation is usually the one you're going through right now. (laughs) It's very, very difficult to see past the tribulation of the moment. When some guy in some horrible dictatorship, like, for example, the one in Iran, Iran, when he has his wife raped and his children killed and he's at the secret police headquarters having his fingernails ripped out by the parrot with a pair of pliers it's going to be really difficult to convince him that that's not the great tribulation i mean what a smug sanctimonious western self-righteous uh, righteousness to say to him oh this is nothing this this is nothing we'll elude the great tribulation we'll be raptured out before that time well you know i feel like he's in it He's in the middle of a a great tribulation. But these two men in prison, chained to each other, chained to the wall, beaten, stripped naked, humiliated, in pain, under the bondage of a world government and rejected by their own nation and families, powerless with no hope of escape. What's the one thing that they do? They tie into the eternal power of praise the window suddenly opens and they see the throne fixed in heaven. They suddenly say, okay, I can see Caesar, but I see another throne. I can see religion, but I see him that sits upon the the throne. I see the emerald rainbow over his head. I see him gleaming like a precious stone. I hear the 24 elders singing. I see the saints of God pulling off their crowns and throwing them at his feet. I see the angels. I hear the triumph of heaven. And I'm in the stream of that. And they begin to clap their hands and sing and worship God. And The guard and the other prisoners heard them, and I'm sure some of them were mocking them. I can imagine someone yelling at them, Shut up, would you? It's midnight. We're trying to sleep here. And Paul says, Sing louder. Silas, sing louder. Silas. And as they entered into that stream of eternal power and praise, suddenly that stream was free to enter into the history of where they were and the earthquake of God's power erupted in that moment, broke their chains, turned that prison upside down, set them free, won the jailer to Christ. And that story is still recorded in scripture 2000 2000 years later. 
the history that you're going through, when you are able to see through the open door and understand the throne fixed in heaven and live in the power of that praise, you enter into a transcendent power that not war, not famine, not grief, not pestilence, nothing can steal it from you. Now, I'm not saying you need to be oblivious to what's going on around you and what's going on in history. We're, we, we live in the real world. We're living in a real world. There, there's a real war going on right now. People are dying today, right now, at this moment. What, however, what I am saying to you is this. There is a throne above all other thrones, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. The Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, wonderful in counsel and terrible in battle, with an army and his banners are unfurled. A fire goes before him and burns up all his enemies. He is triumphant and glorious and to be praised and adored. We find that the place to see the open door and step in and see him upon his throne, it brings meaning it brings definition, brings dignity to our, dignity to our lives, and, and, and brings it to all of human history. The message of Revelation is not about who Gog is and who Magog is and which army is going to cross the Euphrates and which year. The message of Revelation is this. Jesus is Lord over human history. Nothing is going to happen. Nothing is going to happen that's going to shock Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb. He alone breaks the seals. He alone allows the trumpets to be blown. And it is to Him and Him alone that we shall return. Not a, not a ragged and defeated foe, but a triumphant army welcomed into His presence. So I ask, are, are you afraid? Are, are you struggling? Are you facing temptation or distress? or despair, or worry? Do you sit and stare at Fox News, or CNN, and worry about everything that's going on in our world, and everything that's going on in our country? I, I understand, I understand that, I get that. But listen to the message of Revelation. Jesus is above all of that. Jesus is not changed by war. Jesus is not diminished by famine or pestilence or grief or any of those things. His throne is forever fixed in heaven. And He is magnificent. Stand to your feet with me, would you? Close your eyes and just, would you just lift your hands, just begin to tell Him that He is magnificent? Would you begin to worship Him? I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what worries are weighing down on your heart. I don't know how, how you're, what causes you to, to, to stay awake at night. But, but just know that he is, he is sitting on the throne. He is the Lord over human history. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows where you are. He knows all of those things. He is in control. And you can look up and you can see that there is a throne above every other throne. And you can have peace knowing that Jesus is in control. Just lift your, your voice, open your mouth to Him, and just take a moment just to worship Him. Father, we come to You 
We worship you. Lord, we recognize you, Lord Jesus, as the center of all things. You are the focus of heaven. You are the focus of our lives. You are the focus of all of history, Lord God. And Lord, we come to you and we, we just declare in this place, you are wonderful. You are beautiful. You are a precious jewel. You are the lamb that was slain. You're the God who, who was and is and is to come. You're, you're the Lord of human history. You are, you're triumphant. You are magnificent. Nothing can, can harm us, Lord God. Nothing can wound us. Nothing can steal our joy as long as we're fixed on you. Lord, we worship you. We, we praise you. We magnify you're glorious, you're radiant, you're, you're higher than any nation or throne. You're holier than, 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 than any religion. You're mighty and we praise you. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, as we begin to worship you, we make that choice to say, I'm going to align my praise and worship to the same character and nature of the praise and worship that's going on around the throne, that God, we begin to see the power of God break through in our lives because Lord, we're focusing on you and not on our problems anymore. We're focusing on you. We're worshiping you. And I pray, Lord, that as we do that, that you would keep us in perfect peace. And God, that you would let your power break forth in us, through us, around us, and that Jesus would be glorified above all other things and all other names. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.